Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that as we continue, that you'd give us grace, Lord Jesus, to, to hear your voice. Oh, Jesus, you're a good rabbi. We want to pay attention to your words, Master. We want to pay attention to the words of our rabbi, of our instructor. Teach us through the Holy Spirit. Teach us through your word. Give us an attentive spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. You know, one of the, 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 the uh, encouragements or the, uh, I don't know how to, what to say, the affirmations that Jesus gave the church in Philadelphia was that they had been attentive to his word. They had been attentive. They paid attention to it. So I want to ask the Lord for the same grace that we would be those that he also commends in the same way. This is a very important passage. It's probably one of the most used and abused passages in the church today. Okay? It's one of the most used and abused passages in the church in lots of different ways. And I'm not going to focus on the ways it's abused with maybe just a, just a little bit to show some ways that it's interpreted. But um, we're going to work through it so that we have clarity, and it's going to give us a lot of insight into Matthew 24 and, and the parallel passages of the Olivet Discourse when we get there. So let's, let's start. Luke 17. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. The Greek word here is aimi entos humon. The uh, new NIV, the New King James, and the KJV translates it as within you. The NRSV, the NLT, is among you. ESV, in the midst of you. NASB, in your midst. And take know that the you is plural. And a lot of people, when they interpret this, they fail to take, they don't realize that it's a plural verb. It's not referring to just a singular person. So we interpret this, a lot of the ways we usually interpret this is, the kingdom of God is not an actual government on the earth, but it's a spiritual kingdom. And it's, it's within me. It's just, it's just referring to like some, some uh, it's referring to this built up energy that's in me. And all I have to do is activate it and start loosing it. And I start loosing the kingdom everywhere I go. I just start releasing the kingdom and start loosing it. And all of these kinds of things. And so if I just... The kingdom's within me, and if I just tap into that potential, you know, fast a little bit more, all the, whatever, whatever, how, whatever ways we tap into it, you know, I, you know, I come and I just, whoa, I start releasing the kingdom. <laughs> okay, that's the way we often use, interpret that verse. Has anybody heard the verse interpreted in that kind of way? Jesus wasn't really talking about a real actual government and kingdom on the earth in fulfillment of every jot and tittle of the prophets he just was throwing all the prophets and scrapping all the the words of the prophets throwing them you know away to replace it with a an ethical code on the inside <laughs> true jesus writes the law of god on our hearts but when he says the kingdom of god is in you know when he's talking about the kingdom of god he's talking about an actual government okay so let's see what he means here then he, said to, then he says to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is, or here it is. Do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, 
which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Now, isn't this odd? The kingdom of God, it's not coming with your observation, but then he goes into a bunch of series, you know, things that, um, as you read the rest of Luke 17, he starts talking about the last generation and signs and things to be looking out for before the kingdom of God's established. What's actually happening here? Let's work through this together. This word, am I intos human, the word am I, it, it, it's, it's usually translated is, but when it's in reference to a place or a location, it also has, it can have the sense of comes from. Or if it's coming, you know, or it is from, it comes from. The same for uh, if it's, if the place, if it's going to the place, comes to, is to, it's unto. And so you see that translation here in John uh, 7, 27 through 29. But we know where this man is from, and the Greek, it's the same word here, the same Greek word, and the ESV and the NLT translates it comes from, because that's the, that's the sense. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. The ESV NLT translates it comes from. And so the point I want to make here is that it's important to recognize that, that, they're a, that they ask him, let me, let me find the, the spot here. They ask him when the kingdom of God would come. And they're asking him, uh, when's it going to come? And he replies with, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Were they watching the, sky? Were, were they watching the skies? Were they watching for the, the signs in the heavens? They absolutely were looking for signs in the heavens. They were looking for signs that would herald the day of the Lord when the kingdom would be established. Okay, this was the hope of Israel. They're looking for signs in the heavens for that. And they're not only looking to the signs in the heavens, but they're looking out, they're observing the desert for the Messiah who's going to come in context to the day of the Lord that the signs in the heavens testify to. Does this make sense? And Jesus is saying, don't, um, he's saying, don't look to the desert. Don't look to the desert. And as we're going to see here in just a minute, the desert was where all of the messiahs would try to gather their followers, the false messiahs, and the false prophets, they would gather their followers out to the desert in an attempt to foment a rebellion against Rome, and they would take advantage of all the messianic t- expectations of the people in an attempt to gather them to themselves to, uh, for the purpose of, of leading an insurrection against Rome. And what Jesus is saying here is that people are going to say they're going to try to draw you out to the desert and don't go out to them. We're going to see that in the parallel. Don't go out to them in the desert. The point I'm making here is that Jesus is saying that don't look to the desert because the kingdom of God is going to come into your midst. The you is plural. He comes into their midst. And the question is, where does he come from? Does he come from the desert like these other messianic first century uh, false messiahs did or where is he going to come from and that's where he goes on in the rest of the chapter let's look at it 
Then he says to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, when the kingdom is genuinely going to be set up, but you will not see it. Men will tell you there he is or here he is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. So what he's saying here is false messiahs are going to rise up and try to draw men to the desert, claiming to be the Messiah, claiming that the day of the Lord's at hand. Don't go out to them because me, the true Messiah, in my day, when I do come to establish the kingdom, I'm not going to come from the desert. I'm going to come into your midst from the sky. The kingdom of God comes into your midst. And the question is, from where? The heavens in power. And that's what the context says. So let's, let's read it from, uh, from uh, th- this translation here. This is John Harrigan's translation. If you want to, to, he covers this in his biblical theology, of, uh, biblical theology seminar that he did here in the fall. The kingdom of God does not come with your observation, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God comes into your midst. And the question is, where does it come into your plural midst from? And as we'll see here, Jesus is contrasting his his second coming at the end of the age with false messianic movements of the first century who draw people out to the desert. So let's look at Matthew 24, 26 to 27. So if anyone tells you there he is out where? Out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So what he's saying there is, when these false messiahs are trying to draw you out in the wilderness to gather you to their false messianic movement to try to overthrow Rome in human power, when they try to do that, don't go out to them. They're claiming that they're going to establish the kingdom. They're claiming that they're the Messiah who's going to establish it. Don't go out to them. They're false messiahs. The Son of Man, in my day, when I come back at the end of the age, I'm coming into your midst collectively as a nation, as a people, from the, from the sky. From the sky. And in that generation, there'll be signs to be observed because that will actually be the day of the Lord. Does that make sense? Now, now just so that we, we're clear about this. Oh, yeah. Yes, Andy. It'll be obvious that he's back. And the question, we're going to get to that in the all, when we get to session two. We're going to get to that. So I'm just going to hold it. What's that? The inner rooms, I believe, are either in the temple or in the city somewhere because the inner rooms is where they would, you know, where people, if they wanted to gather a crowd to try, you know, you see the charismatic revolutionary leaders. Oh, come on, we're going to. We're going to overthrow the students. We're going to protest. You know, they, you know they, they, go to, they would go to the temple to do that. So it might, it might either be the temple or the inner rooms where they're meeting in secret, plotting their schemes in the inner rooms of the city. And as we'll see, an example, that's what Barabbas was doing, actually. So let's read these. Uh, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied, Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Okay. Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Let's read Acts 5. Then he addressed them, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. 
some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody. He claimed, claiming to be somebody means he, he was claiming to be a prophet or the Messiah. And about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. So there's one messianic, false messianic movement, verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. So let's look. Uh, this is what they were trying to get Jesus crucified on these charges, actually. They were trying to get Pilate to condemn him as one who was trying to lead an insurrection uh, in the nation. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. Uh, I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Jesus, the restraint. I'm not starting a rebellion now. I'm giving you a chance for mercy, but I will cry. You know, it's like, I know he, he knows what's coming in the future, but the exact opposite of a false messiah um, the messiahs are either like these guys or they're like him you know and and obviously jesus is the true messiah with one voice they cried out away with this man release barabbas to us barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder so let's read some examples from josephus here <clears throat> this is josephus jewish historian one of the most uh, important accounts we have of life in Israel in the first century. But there was an Egyptian false prophet that did the Jews more mischief than the former. For he was a cheat and pretended to be a prophet also and got together 30,000 men that were deluded by him. 30,000! These he led roundabout from the wilderness to the mount which was called the Mount of Olives and was ready to break into Jerusalem by force from that place. And if he could but once conquer the Roman garrison and the people, he intended to domineer over them by the assistance of those guards of his that were to break into the city with him. But Felix present, prevented his attempt and met him with his Roman soldiers while all the people assisted him in his attack upon them, insomuch that when it came to, the, to a battle, the Egyptian ran away with a few others while the greatest part of those that were with him were either destroyed or taken alive. That's where false messianic movements lead when we take vengeance into our own hands instead of entrusting judgment into the hands of God. <clears throat> Next example. Now it came to pass, while Phaddis was procurator of Judea, that a certain magician whose name was Thutis, and, and the note in this part of Josephus says that he's different from the Thutis uh, that we read about in Acts 5. Pers so he's a, he's a certain magician, name was Thutis, persuaded a great part of the people to take their effects with him and follow him to the river Jordan, for he told them he was a prophet and that he would, by his own command, divide the river and afford them an easy passage over it. And many were deluded by his words. However, Faddis did not permit them to make any advantage of his wild attempt, but sent a troop of horsemen out against them, who, falling upon them unexpectedly, slew many of them and took them alive. They also took Thutis alive and cut off his head and carried it to Jerusalem. This was what befell the Jews in the time of Cuspius, Faddis' government. Let's read the next example. Now, as for the affairs of the Jews, they grew worse and worse continually, for the country was again filled with robbers and impostors who deluded the multitudes. These works that were done by the robbers filled the city with all sorts of impiety. And now these impostors and deceivers persuaded the multitude to follow them into where? Into the wilderness. And pretended that they would exhibit what? Manifest wonders and signs. They're false prophets. That should be performed by the providence of God. 
And many that were prevailed on by them suffered the punishments of their folly. Don't go out to them, Jesus says. For Felix brought them back and then punished them. Moreover, there came out of Egypt, and this is where th- this guy thinks that this is the guy in Acts 21, the, the commentator here and Josephus. Moreover, there came out of Egypt about this time to Jerusalem, one that said he was a prophet and advised the multitude of the common people to go along with him to the Mount of Olives, as it was called, which lay over against the city and at the distance of five furlongs. They're drawing them to the Mount of Olives because the Mount of Olives is where the Messiah is so, supposed to appear. They're claiming to be the Messiah that he's doing. They're claiming to do Zechariah 14. He said farther that he would show them from hence how at his command the walls of Jerusalem would fall down. And he promised that he would procure them an entrance into the city through these those walls when they were fallen down. So. Um, now, when Felix, so they, they get slaughtered and a lot of people with them. He also slew 400 of them, took 200 alive. But the Egyptian himself escaped out of the flight. Um, the next example. Now, this one is intense because. Yeah, this one happens in context just as the temple is about to be destroyed. This is during the siege of 8070, I believe. Now the Romans, judging that it was in vain to spare what was round about the holy house, the temple, they burnt all those places as also the remains of the cloisters and the gates. So they're burning the city. Now, let's go down to, uh, yeah, so they're burning the city. That's the point. The, the temple's about to be destroyed. Let's turn to the next page. The temple's about to be destroyed. Now look at beginning no, at the number there, 285. A false prophet. So here, picture this. The city is under siege by the Romans. The temple is about to be taken and destroyed. Things are in flames. And here's what a false prophet comes to proclaim. A false prophet was the occasion of these people's destruction who had made a public, public proclamation in the city that very day that God commanded them to get up upon the temple, and that there they should receive miraculous signs of their deliverance. Now, there was a, then a great number of false prophets suburned by the tyrants to impose upon the people who denounced this to them, that they should wait for deliverance from God, and this was in order to keep them from deserting. They're giving them false hopes that they might be buoyed up above fear and care by such hopes. Now, a man that is in adversity does easily comply with such promises, for when such a seducer makes him believe that he shall be delivered from those miseries which oppress him, then it is that the patient is full of hopes of such deliverance. <clears throat> so, this is what Jesus was warning them about. He's saying, you guys are looking for these false messiahs. They're going to they're go out to the Mount of Olives. They're going to gather people to the wilderness. You're looking for signs in the heavens announcing that the day of the Lord's at hand. You're looking at the deserts for the messiahs to arise out there to draw people to themselves. This is not the generation of the kings of the the kingdom's establishment, he says. First, the son of man must suffer in this generation. The day when those signs begin to unfold in the last days, that's the day when my kingdom will be established. These guys are false imposters. If you go out and join their movements, they're going to get you killed. They're going to get you killed. They're false prophets. They're false messiahs. The son of man in my day, I'm coming into your midst in power from above. So, and we see this confirmed in, uh, let's look in uh, letter D. The kingdom of God comes into the midst of Israel in power from the heavens above when the Messiah returns. The kingdom of God 
Another will they say, here it is or there it is, meaning in this generation, for the kingdom of God comes into your collectively midst from above when the light, when the son of man comes in power as, and is visible as lightning is visible even from the east to the west. It's going to be visible to all and it's going to be clear that judgment is not happening by, by man. But God is the one now doing the judgment and the Messiah is coming to punish the, the enemies of Israel. That God is doing it, not these self-appointed messiahs. Okay? And there are a lot of applications we can have for this at the, at the church. Who actually executes justice and vengeance? Who establishes the kingdom? Even if it's not the exact same context as the first century? These are important questions. By whose power? Okay? The kingdom of God comes into the midst of Israel in power from the heavens above when the Messiah returns. This is, uh, I'm reading from, um, yeah, I just, I, I just finished reading that um, here in um, Luke. That's Luke 17 again. Just reiterating that. The point being that the Son of Man must suffer and reject, be rejected by many suffer many things and be rejected by this generation before he comes in the generation to establish the final generation to establish his kingdom. This is what the Lord says to me. This is Isaiah 31. As a lion growls, a great lion over his prey, and though a whole band of shepherds is called together against him, he is not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. This is the Antichrist armies gathering against Jerusalem. So the Lord Almighty will what? Come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights like birds hovering overhead, okay? You're just like, you, when you look up and you see birds hovering, you know that there's probably, if, if they're scavengers, there probably is a carcass down there, okay? Where the vulture, where the, 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 the corpse is, there the vultures will gather, that kind of thing. You look up and you know that it's up, it's up in the sky. So the Lord will deliver it. Now, now look over in, uh, down in verse eight. Assyria, representing the Antichrist and his armies, they'll fall by a sword that is not of man. A sword not of mortals will devour them. These false messianic movements taking vengeance into their own hands. Jesus is saying, no. In the generation, when I come to establish the kingdom at the end of the age, I came to suffer in this generation. At the end of the age, when I come to establish my kingdom, I will come and it will be vengeance and retribution from God because all human beings have fallen short of the glory of God and none of us have the right to, 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 to take vengeance into our own hands. We all re- receive his mercy. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And then uh, Isaiah, Zechariah chapter uh, 9. Then the Lord, it, the context again is the Antichrist into the age. Then the Lord will appear where? Over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. Does it get any more clear? The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. The Lord Almighty will shield them. All right, let's keep moving. Now, now we're getting to Daniel. Tracking with me, tracking with me. The reason we went into Luke 17 is this whole discussion is very significant for passage for parts of the Olivet Discourse. Okay, and you're, we're, we're going to have this discuss. We're going to work it out on the front end now so that when we get there, we don't have to rehash it again. Okay. Key passage, Daniel, before working through the Olivet Discourse, it's also important to have a clear grasp of some key passages in the book of Daniel related to something called the abomination of desolation. Or the abomination that causes desolation. 
or the desolating sacrilege. There's different ways you can translate it. Daniel 9. This is a very complex passage, so let's work through it. Um, I'm not going to work a lot through the context here, but if you remember in Daniel 9, the prayer, the, the, the passage starts, let's read the first couple of verses here. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation, and if something is desolate, it often, it has, it usually carries both senses. Sometimes it means that it's, it's desolated, it's, it's, it's destroyed, but we can't forget that it, it means empty. It means it's desolate, there's nothing there, okay? And that's what Daniel is getting ready to lament, is the fact that Jerusalem was made empty and that her sons and daughters that, that call themselves by the name of the Lord, who calls himself, who, who's put his name in that city, that it's empty of her sons and daughters. He's lamenting that. He's lamenting both her destruction and the fact that that destruction led to an empty city. <clears throat> I, Daniel, understood that, that according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. <clears throat> so by the, this about the time, this is, Daniel's praying this prayer, apparently about the time that this, you know, he's got this on his mind, the 70 years might be coming to a close. And he, he's, he begins to pray, I pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting, sackcloth and ashes. He's repenting is what he's doing this whole prayer. I prayed to the Lord my God and confess, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. He's talking about in the Torah. If you read the, if you read the Torah, all the statutes, read Deuteronomy especially, if you don't, Follow these statutes I'm giving you today. You'll be kicked out of land. You'll be oppressed by foreigners. All these curses that come upon them if they don't obey the stipulations of the Torah. Okay, go back and read Deuteronomy. What he's saying here is we have disobeyed those statutes that you told us. And you said that if we disobeyed, all these bad things would happen to us. And they happen to us. They happen to us. That's what he's basically saying here. You did what you said you would do if we did that. Down to verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law, so he's got the Mosaic law there in mind, turned and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, for example, Deuteronomy 28, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against you. So the reason Nebuchadnezzar was allowed to take that city was because God was doing what he said he would do back in the law. It's very important to remember in this passage, and we're going we're to see why. Verse 16, now, of course, Daniel's the desire of his heart is for, is for Jerusalem to be restored. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your holy city, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant for your sake, O Lord. Look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Okay, give ear, O God, and hear, open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. His cry is, God, when is Jerusalem and the temple no longer going to be desolate? When is Zion going to be restored and redeemed? Daniel's thinking, okay, maybe this is the time where Zion's going to be redeemed for good. And maybe, maybe he thought, well, is the Messiah coming? I mean, who knows what's all going on in his mind? But he's reading this prophecy from Jeremiah. Jerusalem has been desolated. 
in fulfillment of the prophecies in the Mosaic Covenant and the, the, the punishments. And now he's crying out for her restoration, which is also prophesied. Okay? And here's Daniel gets some good news and bad news in the answer. <clears throat> While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill. Again, the focus here is where? Jerusalem and the temple. That's the focus. We've got to keep that in mind. That's what we're asking about here. That's what Daniel's asking about. That's what he wants to know about. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, he comes to me. He says, Daniel, I've come to give you understanding. You're highly esteemed. Consider the message and understand its vision. That's what we're doing tonight, guys. We want to join Daniel, and we want to consider the message. Seventy-sevens, the NIV and most other translations, uh, the NIV note and most other translations, they translate it weeks or weeks of years. It's a heptad. It can refer to uh, like a literal week or also a week of years. Seven years is the point. Seven heptads of years. Now, get this. If you read in Leviticus about the year of Jubilee, how many years are in a Jubilee cycle? 49. And then what's the 50th year? What happens in the year of Jubilee? What's that? People get back their stuff. What would you say, Eric? Everybody's restored. Slaves set free. Everybody goes back to their own land, their own inheritance. So they go to back to their own inheritance. They go to their debts are paid off. They're no longer slaves. Pretty powerful picture. What do you think God's actually saying through that? What happens, you know, when Jesus comes back and we're set free from sin? We're set, we receive our, remember the passage from Isaiah, he'll reassign its desolate inheritances, all that stuff. Okay. The year, yeah, he says, I'm the guy that does the Jubilee thing. I'm the guy that's going to bring that to pass. This is very important. This is very important because this is what Daniel is asking about. When is Zion going to enter into Jubilee? When is Zion going to be set free from her oppression? All the, see what I'm saying? That's what he, he wanting, he's wanting to know. I don't know if he was act, asking it in that exact term, but that's the answer that the angel gives him was 77s. What he's saying here is 70 Jubilee cycles. 70 Jubilee cycles. A lot of, a lot of commentators, they'll, they'll, they'll calculate this based on 490 years, but they forget the Jubilee year. There's 10 extra years. It's actually 500 years. For an excellent article that just came out on this, I've got it in the footnote there. Go read it. It's very good. It's very well thought out. It's by Tim Warner. Guys, check out some of Tim Warner's stuff. I really like that guy. He's got his head on straight. He's really, you know, resurrection of the body, not heavenly destiny focused and all that stuff. So I really like him. Uh, not everything. There's definitely, but, you know, whatever. <clears throat> so uh, he wouldn't agree with most, probably a lot of things I'd say either and, and you know, whatever. So. The uh, still loving each other and um, living for the age to come. So he's saying that 70 jubilee cycles are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness. We know what that is. Ever righteousness, everlasting righteousness, righteousness we've talked about before, covenant faithfulness. To bring in the full fulfillment of the covenants. Okay? To seal up vision and prophecy. I think there, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, 
I now I see in part through prophecy, don't I? But then I will be known as I am fully known. I will know as I'm fully known and prophecy will what? It will cease. It will cease because the fulfillment of the prophecy is actually there. You don't need it anymore because the fulfillment's there. Okay? So all the prophecies concerning Jerusalem and Israel and the restoration of all things, um, it'll be sealed up because it's our, the fulfillment of it's there and to anoint the most holy. So basically he's just saying this is for God's jubilee, which is embodied by the forgiveness of sins, the tr- finishing of transgressions, anointing the most holy, because that and he wants to know, when will the most holy be anointed? When will the holy city be anointed? When will the temple be anointed? And he's coming in to give them the answer. He's going to say, actually, Daniel, 70 years. I got some news for you. It's actually going to be 70 times seven. It's going to be, it's going to be 70 jubilee cycles. This, would have, this must have been shocking to Daniel. Shocking. Shocking. He's thinking, it's happening now. The Lord says no. And let's see why. Let's see. Um, we're going to see why here in a second. He says, no one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem under Cyrus until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. This is the Messiah. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. There'll be one jubilee cycle um, related to the, uh, the rebuilding and restoration of Jerusalem the first time. And then from that point, there's going to be 62 sevens. And, and then the, the uh, oh, we're going to see in, the, in, in, in 926, we're going to see that after the 62 sevens, the Messiah is going to be cut off. He's going to be crucified. It's prophesying that. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And what it's saying there, it's talking about, read Nehemiah and Ezra, the opposition that they're receiving as they're trying to rebuild the temple in times of trouble. They're trying to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. So all of this stuff is, is c- pretty clear um, when we look at it carefully. But the point is, he's, he's saying there's going to be seven, uh, 70 times 7, 70 sevens, 70 jubilee cycle before the big jubilee, before the restoration of all things and fulfillment of the jubilee when we're set free from our slavery to sin completely, our slavery to bondage to decay and all that stuff when we receive our inheritance and go back to the land and all that. So now look at this in Leviticus 26. Remember, they're in this situation because they've transgressed against the law of Moses. Well, let's see what the law of Moses says. If after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins. How many times over? Seventy times seven. Verse 21. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions. How many times over? Seven times over. The punishment, the the time was 70 years. That 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied was coming to a close. And basically what Gabriel is saying is that the people have not sufficiently repented. Therefore, 70 times 7 in fulfillment of the law before the Jubilee. It's intense. And it's not only intense, but when we get to verses 9 and 26 and 27, it's a whole new level of intensity. For Daniel, I mean. There's a reason that Daniel would go about for weeks and weeks. I couldn't, I couldn't sleep for weeks. This is intense stuff. Okay, I could, oh, it was all, I, I, it was, I was so troubled, I fainted, I couldn't. You know, it's really intense stuff that he's receiving here. Very interesting connection there. It's really good. 
Yeah, wondering whether he's got that, in, that Daniel 9 in his mind for that. Forgive him. Because he, he's restraining for 70 times 7. That's good. I like that. <coughs> Revival's breaking out in here. Um, so anyway, we, we went through the, basically Le- Leviticus 25 talking about the uh, Jubilee here. It's going to be 49 years, the 50th year's Jubilee. You proclaim liberty throughout the land to its inhabitants. Um, and then you go back to uh, verse, down to verse 40. He's to, uh, he is to be treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident among you. He is to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then he and his children are to be released. He will go back to his own clan, to the property of his forefathers. Who did God promise the land of Israel to? To Abraham, right? Has Abraham received it yet? When's he going to get it? In the resurrection. That's right, when he goes back to the land that's already his. He goes back to get his property. He goes back to reclaim his property in the resurrection, in the jubilee. So, (laughs) all right. All right, we're revving up, people. We're still doing background. We're doing background. All right, here we go. Daniel 9, 26 to 27. I hate to get technical, but we've got to do a little bit of it. We've got to do a little bit of technical scholarly kinds of stuff. Okay? Yeah, here we go. <clears throat> the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. All right? The Sophereme from the Hebrew. We're going to see where most of our modern Bibles are. The Old Testament is based on the Masoretic text. How many of you have heard about that? The Masoretic text, you've heard that? Okay. Let's, let's just read a little bit about it so we have an understanding. The Sophereme from the meaning, meaning scribes were the Jewish scholars and custodians of the Old Testament text between the 5th and 3rd centuries B.C., whose responsibility it was to standardize and preserve it. They were followed by the Zugoth, which were pairs of textual scholars, in the 2nd and 1st centuries B.C. So these are just, we're think, they're talking about who are the ones that have preserved the scriptures for us over the centuries. The third group were the Tanaim, whose work extended to AD 200. The work of the Tanaim can be found in the Midrash, Tosefta and Talmud, which latter is divided into the Mishnah. The Talmud gradually was written between A.D. 100 and 500. Between A.D. 500 and 950, the Masoretes added the vowel pointings and pronunciation marks to the consonantal Hebrew text received from the Sofarim on the basis of the Masorah, a tradition that had been handed down to them. And the thing we need to realize here is that there were several traditions of ancient texts, biblical texts, that were passed down. Okay, sometimes they're in full agreement. Sometimes there's some variation. You've got to compare and contrast and look. This is where actual some some lower criticism, not the highest criticism that completely overthrows the authority of the Bible, but the lower criticism that compares manuscripts and says, what reason do we have to believe that this tradition was, uh, you know, was faithfully preserved and that these kinds of things. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls were so huge of a discovery when they started comparing the Masoretic text to these Dead Sea Scrolls, which were hundreds of years, which predated our, uh, the Masoretic text, by hundreds of years in terms of the manuscripts that we actually possess, they found an unprecedented degree of, 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 of uh, similarity in those texts. Very small percentage of, of variance, but there was some variance, and so you have different textual traditions that sometimes those that had that that like those that translated the, the Septuagint, sometimes there's variation in, in the, the Masoretic text. Does that make sense? And so 
there was probably some text that those who translated the Septuagint had access to that some of them may have been shared by the Masoretic text, some of them may not have been shared. And so that's, that's where we have the gift of solid evangelical scholars to, to, to do that work for us. And they, they include all of that in our, in our translations. In the notes, you'll see they'll have Masoretic, Masoretic text says this, the Septuagint says this, so that you can get a full picture and weigh, out, weigh it out under the Spirit's leadership. It's a technical point, but it's important because the Masoretes, they were scribes who codified and wrote down the oral, the oral criticisms and, and remarks on the Hebrew text. There were two major schools, two major schools or centers of Masoretic activity, each largely independent of the other, the Babylonian and the Palestinian. The most famous Masoretes were the Jewish scholars living in Tiberias and Galilee, Moses ben Asher with his son Aaron and Moses ben Naphtali in the late 19th and 10th centuries. So basically, the Masoretic text that we have now, it dates more to our 9th century A.D. Those are the, manuscri- the earliest manuscripts we have of the Masoretic text. The original Hebrew text does not have uh, punctuation markers, vowel markers. It's the same as Arabic. If, oh, if, you, if you're learning Arabic, most of the time, it's a consonantal-based language that does not have vowels in it. And you just have to know what the word means based on your understanding of the context. It doesn't have any, there's no written vowels in it. Unless, sometimes they'll have scribes that put little markers to denote, after this consonant, you should say an I versus an A. Or an E versus an O. They'll put the little markers in there, punctuations, so that you can, when you're reading it, you know, okay, I should interpret this word, maybe should, should probably be interpreted this way. Because especially if, you're, if you, don't know, you don't grow up speaking Hebrew, that could be a problem if you don't know the vowels. Because, see, it's, it's tough. And so in Arab, when I was learning Arabic, I'd be looking at it, and I'd find a text that had the, some of the markers so that I could know which way to take the vowel because it would change the word. Because you can have, sometimes you can have the same word, the same, consen- the same consonants, the exact same three. If you had e or, uh, B, D, e, B, D, G, that could be five different words, BDG, and you just have to know from the context which word it is, okay? But you put the, di- the markers in there, and it indicates which vowels should go in there so that you know what the word is. So that's what the Masoretes did. They put those markers in. But take note that the marks were not the inspired. That's important to note. They were traditions, but they weren't infallible. I think they're very highly trustworthy, most of them, but they're, they're they... They, they're not, they can be questioned, is what I'm saying. If you come to a word and there's a, cons- a Hebrew consonant, the, the consonants, they're perfectly, ins- they're, they're, ins- they're inspired word of God. But when you're interpreting it in the context, we need to look at the various traditions to see are other traditions of Jews and other interpreters that, that interpreted those consonants possibly in a different way than the Masoretes did. Does that make sense? That's the, that's the reason we're going into this, because it has significance for our, our interpretation of Daniel 9.26. All the little dots, yeah. There's Hebrews without, Hebrew without dots and Hebrew with dots. <laughs> that's the... Okay, so Daniel 9.26-27, I've just compared four translations here. Now, before we get into this, usually 9.26... Uh, 9.26 and 9.27 is usually interpreted, especially 9.27, it's usually interpreted as either the Messiah 
himself or as the Antichrist. This is a huge, huge, huge point. There's a big difference between Jesus and the Antichrist. We need to be clear who's talking about being talked about here. Just know that in these passages, the two main streams of interpretation for commentators has been to apply uh, the first part of Daniel 9.27 to either Jesus or the Antichrist. (laughs) Okay? We need to be clear about what's happening here. Okay. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. These are all um, pretty much the same on this one. ESV, after the 62 weeks, an, an anointed one, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be cut off and shall have nothing. What he's saying here is 62 weeks, six, after, the 69, after 69 weeks of years, the anointed one is going to be cut off. He's going to be, he's going to be crucified. Okay? We know that he was crucified after the fact, but when Daniel received it, some cut off means means it's 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 usually a judgment when you when you see uh when you're reading the the old testament to be cut off from your people means bad thing that's judgment that's um and that's what the messiah did he was cut off um and he'll have nothing i like another translation that says uh, oh i like the king james v he'll be cut off but not for himself he'll be judged but not for himself oh isn't that beautiful He's going to be judged and condemned, but it's not because of his own sin. It's for ours. I love the, the King James on that one. The people of the ruler who will come. Now, here's the big verse that we went into all of that, that preface for. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, this is obviously referring to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which was, which it was destroyed after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, wasn't it? The temple was destroyed again. The question is, what are the implications for verse 27? So let's keep going. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Let's look at it in the ESV. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now listen, the reason this is uh, important is because this prince... Is it Jesus or is it the Antichrist? Those are the two interpretations. Those who say it's the Antichrist say this. The people, meaning the Roman Empire, of the ruler, the Antichrist, who will come, will destroy the city. Meaning that the Antichrist is going to come out of Rome because the Romans were the people who destroyed the city in the the first century. Now, if you listen to... Uh, somebody like Joel Richardson, who I'm, I'm not going to say that yet because I don't know whether we can actually get him up here, but um, I'd like to see him maybe come up and do a seminar, God willing, but maybe not if he's not able to. But he really is, it's, he's got some really solid stuff. His name is Joel Richardson, Antichrist, Islam is the way to Messiah. Read his stuff, listen to his teachings. Highly, highly recommend. He really is a strong proponent of an Antichrist system based out of the Middle East rather than having its stronghold in Europe. And I think he's got a lot of biblical weight behind him. He says, everybody's looking to Europe. The scriptures point you to the Middle East. And, um, but anyway, he, so he kind of addresses this. But the people of the ruler who will come. So what, that's what the claim is. This is the Antichrist. Even though, you know, the, the people that support for the Messiah, they'll say, wait a minute. Didn't 
wasn't Daniel back? Didn't the angel talk? Wasn't he talking about the ruler, the anointed one, the ruler who will come? 62 weeks, and then, the, and then uh, where is it? Where is it here? Um, yeah, didn't he say back in... Yeah, yeah, there it is. Uh, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes. Isn't it talking about the Messiah? Why does, is it just why is it suddenly randomly shifting to the Antichrist? That's what the proponents who say it's the Messiah. They say uh, uh, that it's referring to him. The people of but then you have to figure out, well, what does it mean? For, what would it mean for the people of the Messiah to destroy the temple? There's actually, Josephus actually a number of times says that the Jews brought their destruction of the temple on themselves because of their sedition. There, it's crazy, guys, what was happening as the temple was being destroyed. The stuff they were doing, we're going to read a little bit about it. But. So anyway, that's the, that's the first thing. <clears throat> then he says, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Or its end, referring to the, the end of the temple, shall come with the flood. This is the ESV. It's the, temp- the city and the sanctuary, its end shall come with a flood. Now, the tricky thing is, is that the, the, it can be translated his or its there, because in Hebrew, there's no, uh, there's no neutral pronouns or something like that, object pronouns. It's just you have to know from the context whether to translate it as a personal he or she or an it, because in English, we do have an impersonal pro- uh, object pronoun. Sorry, I get, again, this is... I don't even know Hebrew and Greek, but I, I, I like languages. And so I, I kind of know enough about how languages work a little bit, especially since Arabic is related to Hebrew. They function the same way. And so we do need to, we have the resources to do exegetical studies in detail on these things, but we need to be careful on this one because we really want to know what the Lord is saying. Desolations are decreed. So the ESV gives the sense, its end, referring to the, the temple and the sanctuary, will come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now let's go to verse 27. He will confirm. A, what's that? Desolations are decreed. And to the end of the temple there shall be war. Or to the end of the age there shall be war. Some, it's, it's not exactly clear there. But if you're going for the Antichrist interpretation, then sometimes you'll interpret end as there's going to be war until he emerges or something like that. Does this make sense? Okay, Uh, verse 27, he, now who's the he? Is it the Antichrist or is it the Messiah? Will confirm a covenant with many, many what? Many who? Many people? Many what? Many nations? He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. If you listen to a lot of Bible teachers, especially those that come out of a stream called premillennial dispensationalism, okay, they really... They, they teach that this, this is where you get the teaching that at the beginning of the final seven years, the Antichrist is going to enter into a covenant with Israel. One of the things that's kind of hard for those that think it's the Messiah, that's hard for them to swallow is how come that false treaty is not mentioned a single place in the New Testament by the apostles and by Jesus himself as one of the key signs of the times. Everybody's looking for this, this, this flimsy treaty with the antichrist with israel but where is it nobody there's no mention of it anywhere else why if that was if it was that significant then why did why don't they mention it? it's an argument from silence but it's an interesting it's it's worthy worth thinking about okay they don't they don't mention it 
In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, again, if you're interpreting this as the Antichrist, based on your 926, the prince, the people of the ruler who will come, the Antichrist. If you're interpreting this as the Antichrist, you're interpreting this as in the middle of the seven years, he's going to put an end to the sacrifice in the Jewish temple. However, if you're interpreting this as Jesus, what he's saying here is that at the middle of the three and a half years, the Messiah will be cut off and crucified and put an end to sacrifice and offering by his own sacrifice. See, this is why we've got to be careful on this interpretation. We wonder, what is what is he really saying here? And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Until the end, now there, there go the, the translators here are definitely biased towards the Antichrist interpretation of this. You can tell by the way they translate it in the NIV here. He will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him, referring the him to the Antichrist. He's going to set up the abomination until judgment comes upon him at the end of the age. Okay, now let's read the NIV note. I like the alternative in the footnote there of the NIV. It says, and one who causes desolation will come upon the pinnacle of the the abominable temple until the end that is decreed is poured out on the desolated city. That's a huge difference, isn't it? Is the judgment being poured out on the city or on the Antichrist? Um, Let's read the ESV. And on it it or him, because it's the Hebrew there. It can go either way based on the context. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who, who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So here um, you have the, the ESV more in agreement with the NIV. But the King, King James Version has a, a, a different sense. And in the, uh, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, meaning the wings, not necessarily referring just to uh, the edge, but sometimes, and I did a word study on it, sometimes the word wings refers to the far-reaching because the wings are the outermost point of like a bird, right? The wings referring to the four wings of the earth, referring to the four winds, the four corners of the earth. Sometimes it refers to the four wings of the earth, the four corners of the earth. So what it's saying here is because of the overspreading of abominations in the land, uh, where is it? Uh, yeah, he shall make it the ta- the temple desolate, even until the uh, until the consummation, and that is determined shall be poured out upon the desolate the desolate city. So it's a little ambiguous here. If it's the antichrist, what it's saying is at the beginning of the seven years, the messiah the antichrist comes, forms a covenant with Israel. He breaks the covenant at the three and a half year point by abolishing the abomination of desolation. And then there's desolations throughout the earth caused by the Antichrist until the Messiah comes and destroys him at the end. If it's the Messiah, we're saying that the Messiah ends the sacrifice at the three and a half year mark by his own death. Okay, confirms a covenant with many. Gentile confirms the covenant with many nations, basically, and until the. uh, and that the Messiah himself actually brings the, the judgment on Jerusalem. 
Is this a little, is this clear as mud? <laughs> it's technical, but very important. Now let's go to the Septuagint. Let's go to the Septuagint. I think when you get to the Septuagint, it's very clear, very clear. And there's lots and lots of Bible verses. See, I'm going to go ahead and say my, my leaning is towards the Messiah. My leaning is towards the Messiah, not the Antichrist. I've gone back and forth. I, I've chewed on this verse so many times, and I'm, la- I'm starting to land towards the Messiah because I have lots and lots of Bible verses that confirm that interpretation. And in the New Testament, there are very few that I, I don't see. I don't see anywhere a major sign of the times being this. It may be that they sign a treaty with him, but they don't, the, they don't really mention it as much. Now, let's go to the Septuagint, and, and I'm going to make the case, and then, and then we can go from there. Let's go to the Septuagint. Translators, basically, uh, there's not very many English translations of the Septuagint. The, the most common one that people have access to is Brenton's. So that's the one I'm, we'll focus on. Charles Thompson, he's a, uh, a guy in England. I, or no, I think he's an American. I don't remember, but he translated uh, uh, the Septuagint back in 1808, and it was acclaimed as an, uh, an very great translation. Um, he, apparently, he was applauded for coming up with a great translation. The New English translation is uh, is the uh, is a, is a modern translation. Now, again, another technical point: when it comes to the Book of Daniel, there's two streams. There's two sets of manuscripts that that you can look to. One is the Old Greek manuscript. And one is the Theodosian manuscript. I guess we need to go back to the other page here. Um, where is it? On Theodosian. I don't have time to go into all. I'm not going to go into to Theodosian. Basically, Theodosian, he was a, I believe in the second century, he was a, a uh, I wish I remember my history. Yeah, okay. I'm just going to read it. Theodosian was a Hellenistic Jew around 7200 A.D., Jewish scholar, perhaps working in Ephesus, who, in a, who around A.D. 150 translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Whether he was revising the Septuagint or was working from Hebrew manuscripts that represented a parallel tradition that has not survived is debated. In the second century, Theodosian's text was quoted in the Separate of Hermas and the Christian apologist Justin Martyr's Trypho. Theodosian's version, translation, became integrated into the Septuagint at a very early age, at a very early, sorry, at a very early uh, time in the church's history, his finished version, which filled some lacunae, some uh, gaps in the Septuagint version of the Book of Jeremiah and Book of Job. Uh, let's go down to Theodosian's ver- translation was so widely copied in the early church that its version of the Book of Daniel virtually superseded the Septuagint's. So there's actually an older set of manuscripts called the Old Greek text of the Septuagint, and when it comes to the book of Daniel, that's, that's substantially different from Theodosian. Substantially different. I've read translations of both. And the, the early church came to really favor the, uh, the Theodosian version and began incorporating that into the, uh, the Septuagint, and they preferred it over the Greek text because, well, one of the reasons, it, it, it strongly reflects the Masoretic text, it closely reflects the Masoretic text a lot more. The translation of it does. Does that make sense? The old, the, there's, I think there's like two manuscripts of the old Greek Daniel. And I've, it's just, it's, it's, it's a lot more, dyna, it's a lot more of a, I don't want to use it, 
but the use the phrase uh, paraphrase, but it has a little bit more of that feel to it. And that's the guy who interpreted he he he's interpreted them parallel in the footnote. You, you can find that resource. He's inter interpreted both of them side by side. And the Theodosian one, it's a lot more clear, and it definitely matches the Masoretic text more. If you want to research that more on your own, that you have access to the resources there. But we're going to look at Theodosian. That's the one the early church really embraced, and it more closely reflects the Masoretic text. We tracking on the same page there? All right, so Theodosian. Now let's read, uh, Brent, let's read Brenton's first. And after the 62 weeks, the anointed one shall be destroyed or cut off. And there is no judgment in him. Not for himself. He, there's no condemnation in him. The uh, Charles Thompson says he'll be uh, he'll be emptied out. He'll be destroyed. He'll be cut off. He'll be cut off. Though there is no crime in him, there's no condemnation in him. Is the point? He's innocent. He's innocent. That's pretty straightforward, right? He's cut off. He's crucified. Even though there's no condemnation in him, and he, referring to the Messiah shall destroy the city and the sanctuary sanctuary with the prince that is coming. Here, the Messiah is destroying the temple by means of the Gentile armies. The Messiah himself is sending the armies to destroy Jerusalem, presumably because they cut him off even though he was innocent. Okay? They... The sanctuary and the, uh, the temple shall be cut off with a flood. And to the end of the war, referring to the war that which leads to this, the desolation of this and the sanctuary, which is rapidly completed, he, the Messiah, shall appoint the city, Jerusalem, to desolations. Here, the Messiah, the prince, is from beginning to end in all of Daniel 9, He's the prince who is to come. He's the prince who's cut off. He is the prince who, he is the prince who cuts off the city, who destroys Jerusalem in judgment in AD 70 through, you know, he's, he's sitting enthroned over the nations of the earth and he sends Gentile armies to ju judge Jerusalem. And he's the one who makes the covenant in verse 27. Let's keep going. And one week shall establish the covenant, or it could also be, and he shall establish the covenant. Um, with many, with many who? Many nations in this interpretation. In the midst of the week, my sacrifice and drink offering shall be taken away. Jesus's ministry, do you know how long, how long it lasted? Three and a half years exactly. Three and a half years exactly. Interesting. And on the temple shall be the abomination of desolations. And at the end of time... And in shall be put to the desolation of Jerusalem, which is exactly what Daniel asked about. When will the desolation of Jerusalem cease? It will end at the end of the Jubilee cycle. I have a lot of confidence in the Septuagint here, but I want to know, what about the Masoretic text? I want to have confidence that it's possible in the Masoretic text. Well, we have a big fat surprise when we look at it in the interlinear. Let's look at Daniel 26 in the Hebrew interlinear here. After the fall of Jerusalem, where? Oh, yeah, we already read that. Yeah, next page. Basically, I just quoted this because the, Masoretic, the Masoretic text, the vowel points, um, let's read the last line there. In its original form and in all, the man, in all manuscripts, the Hebrew is written without vowels. Hence, when it ceased to be a spoken language, 
the importance of knowing what vowels to insert between the consonants. So uh, they really needed to preserve those marks, especially when Hebrew wasn't spoken, because it was the spoken language that allowed them to read the language without, without the marks. Now, Daniel 9.26, let's go. Uh, the two words I want you to compare. Here, oh, let me go up here. Okay, here, the word, um, look in the, in the box there. If you follow it, after the 760 and 2, he shall be cut off, the anointed one, the city, and the holy place. The word here is isheth. It mean, it can, it, an alternative translation is he shall ruin. Okay, the, 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 uh, the English translations here, they translate it as, um, how do they translate it here? And the city and the holy place. Yeah, uh, no, the, the, the English translation of the Masoretic that we looked at earlier. Um, and the people of the prince who is, uh, yeah, okay, anyway, let's just, let's just look at it here. Yeah, he, it, it can, yeah, it shall be destroyed or something like that. I can't find it here. Right. Shall destroy. Oh, yeah, that's right. The, it, yeah, the, Masoret, the English translation of the Masoretic, they translated, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy. Okay? So they're, in, they're interpreting it as the prince who is to come shall destroy, referring to the Antichrist. They're applying that. But the verb itself can be translated as he shall destroy, which is what Theodosian actually, he prefers that translation because he says... He shall destroy, the, referring to the Messiah, the city, and the temple. Does that make sense? So l- l- let's look at it there. Look at Daniel 9.26. He shall ruin. They translate that as, and the, prince of the, of the, 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 the people of the prince who shall come shall destroy the city. But uh, it could also be translated, he shall destroy and look in Daniel 8.28, that's how they actually translate it. They translate it as, um, he, shall, he shall ruin many ones, and the chief ones he shall stand, and in limit of, and, and he shall be broken. The, all of this to say that the word isheth there, it can be translated, he shall ruin, he shall destroy, which is what Theodotion actually translates it as. Go back to the, the, the page before. He translates it as... Uh, he translates it as, and there is no judgment in him, and he shall destroy the city. Okay? Theodosian goes for that translation, the more literal rendering there. Is this making sense so far? Okay? I'm trying not to lose you guys. My brain isn't working very well sometimes, uh, including now, but we'll give it a shot. Now, here's the tricky one. This word, om. Look at the consonants. Look at the consonants there. And compare it with Genesis 31, 32 and the consonants there. This is the, this is the Hebrew without the punctuation marks. Look at the two consonants there. What do you observe about them? They're the exact same consonants, aren't they? Now, the Masoretic text inserts the punctuations 
as M, which means people. But those same two consonants, if you have a different vowel, M, it means with. With. Okay? Look in Genesis 31, 32, and he, he uses there, with whom you are finding, you, you can look it up in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 31, 32 there, but clearly he translates it as with. And so the original Hebrew, depending on how you're interpreting the vowels, can go people or with. Theodotion interprets it as with based on his translation of the early Hebrew text before the Masoretic text, several centuries before. So let's go to the next page. Here is a, this is a perfectly feasible translation. And I've, I've, in the footnote there, I've got a, a resource there in, uh, where is it? In uh, footnote, yeah, footnote 17. There's a guy who came to the same conclusion there, and I, I actually read his article, and I was, I was stunned when I read it. And he had it confirmed with the Hebrew scholar that this is indeed a viable translation. So verse, uh, uh, this is footnote 17. It's, by a, it's an article called Alternate Transliteration of Daniel 9.26. You can look it up there. That's, that's where I, I, I cut and pasted a lot of this from. It's really good, and he's had it confirmed by a, uh, a Hebrew scholar that it is, it, it's a viable translation. So here's, let's look at, this is, this is my translation. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. And the city and the holy place, he will destroy with the ruler, referring to the Messiah. He will destroy with the ruler who will come. The end will come like a flood. War will continue to the end. Desolations have been decreed on the city. It's the exact same thing as the Septuagint. So in my mind, this builds a lot. This makes a lot more strength. This gives strength that you have Theodosian, who's a second century Jew before the Masoretic tradition, who interprets, who interprets the Hebrew text available to him in a way that fully accords with the Septuagint, that, are, that, that accords with a viable translation of the, the Hebrew text. Does this make sense? Now, now the question is, do we have other evidence biblically? Which, which one of these two is the prince, is it, is it the Antichrist or is it the Messiah? Which one has more evidence throughout the Bible? In my mind, there's no doubt Vast numbers of scriptures to support the Messiah on this one. Let's go. Let's look at them. <clears throat> Daniel 9, with the, LA, the, the commentary. This is, my, this is my commentary here. And after the 62 weeks, the anointed one shall be destroyed, and there is no judgment. There's no condemnation, no crime in him. He, the anointed one, <clears throat> who is sovereign over the kingdoms and who is using the kingdoms here to, for his purpose of judgment, he, the Messiah, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary with the prince, by means of the prince, the instrumentality of a Gentile army. That happens all throughout the Old Testament. God using Gentile armies to carry out his judgment against his people. It's everywhere. Lots of precedent for that. <clears throat> Through the prince that is coming, they, the city and the temple, shall be cut off with the flood. And to the end of the war, which is rapidly completed, the word, Greek word there is sontemno, which means to cut short the finish of a shortened war. That's going to have implications for Matthew 24, possibly. He, the Messiah, shall appoint the city to desolations to, till the end of that shortened war. To the end of the war, the city is going to be desolated by those armies that he sends against it. And one week 
shall establish the covenant. The, referring to the everlasting covenant. Because we are now what to Jesus? We are betrothed. And we will, the consummation happens when? At the second coming. At the second coming. So he's saying one week is going to establish the jubilee, the final jubilee. The jubilee cycle is going to be established after this final week. Um, he will establish a covenant with many. And when you look at what the a number of other passages, it, I think it clearly means many nations. And in the midst of the week, the first three First 3.5 referring to Jesus's ministry. My sacrifice and drink offering shall be taken away because they're no longer needed. Just read Hebrews 8 through 10 on that. And the temple. Now, that's an interpretation. The Greek word there just means holy. It can be the holy, the holy. What is it? the holy people, the holy land, the holy temple? It can be any of those. On the holy. Yeah. Shall be the abomination of desolation. And what he means there is after the crucifixion, the armies of verse 26 would surround the surround Jerusalem. And at the end of time, this is Daniel's question. When's des, when when are the uh, desolations going to end when the times of the Gentiles or this is this is Luke. I believe Luke is commenting on this when the times of the Gentiles are complete and the fullness of the Gentile harvest has come in. Referring to Luke 21, Romans 11, and that at, and, and at the end of time. And in shall be put to the desolation of Jerusalem. What he's saying there is the Messiah is going to come in that generation and destroy and, 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 and desolate Jerusalem. But at the end of time, after he's made this covenant with the many, then he's going to put an end to the desolation of Jerusalem. Now, let's look at some other passages here. This is um, let's look in. Uh, this is Matthew. Uh, Luke, this is Luke uh, 13. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus, and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox. I'll drive out demons, so on and so forth. No prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as the hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you come. In the name of the Lord, he's clearly got Daniel nine in mind. In my, I, I believe Daniel nine in his mind there. Luke 19, he weeps over Jerusalem as he approaches it. If you even knew had known on this day, what would bring you peace? What would bring them peace? The crucifixion of the Messiah. If you knew that the cutting off of the Messiah, if you knew what was going to bring you peace. If you'd only known, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. This is this is Daniel nine again. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will leave not one stone on another. Why? Here he gives the reason. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. They did not recognize Daniel nine. They had the whole timeline mapped out for them in Daniel nine by the angel Gabriel. But they didn't recognize it. And in their hardness of heart, they were blinded to the fact that they were carrying out God's means of salvation to the earth. And so because they cut off this one in whom there was no condemnation and in no, no crime, the, temp, the Messiah himself sends the armies. Now, here's the clincher in my mind. Let's read this parable in Matthew 22. Jesus spoke this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. 
he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet. Who are those? That's Israel. I send you to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go out to the Gentiles yet. I'm focusing on Israel. I'm giving them the offer first to tell them to come. But they what? They refused. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they what? Paid no attention. They went off one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. And in Matthew 23, Jesus says, I'm going to send you prophets. I'm going to send you apostles. I'm going to send you wise men and you're going to persecute them. The king was enraged. Who is the king? Jesus. He sent whose army? Who's sending it? His army to destroy those murderers and do what? Burn their city. I'm thinking, my goodness, that's Daniel 9, 26 through 27. And it's the Messiah who's clearly taking credit for this. And it's because they cut, cut him off. And they don't recognize the time of their visitation. Then he said to his servants, the apostles and his other disciples in Israel, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited do not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Who's that? Go to the Gentiles. The covenant with many. So the banquet, so, so the servants went out. The wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed there was a man who was not wearing wedding clothes, meaning that his robes had not been washed in the blood of the lamb. How did you get in here? Many are invited, few are chosen. So I think clearly what he's saying here is that they're going to cut me off. I'm going to invite them in their hardness of heart. They're going to crucify me. That's actually going to be the means, God's means of redeeming the earth. They're not going to do it. They're going to, in their hearts, they're going to do it because of their hardness of heart. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to weep over it because I'm coming with my armies to destroy the city. I'm going to open the door of faith to the Gentiles, invite everybody to my wedding banquet, and at the end of the age, Jerusalem's desolation, will, I will save Jerusalem. Let's go to the next, next page. Verse, uh, for verse 35 in Matthew 23 so upon you, I'm going to send you men, I'm going to send you apostles, wise men, teachers. You're going to crucify them, persecute them in your synagogues, flog them. And so because of verse 34, them doing that in that generation, so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias and of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, this will come upon this generation. The people, there were many people that actually saw Jesus and walked with Jesus that were destroyed in the temple, the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, referencing the end of the age there. Yes, sir. Sure. The praise of the earth. Yeah, and Israel fully back in and not fighting Palestine. Right. And that's why we're going through this now because Jesus touches on this throughout the Olivet Discourse. This is just, this is, there are some places where it almost feels like he's just saying the same thing in different language in something along the, the effects of what you just said. 
<clears throat> so now let's uh, let's skip down to uh, Romans eleven twenty five through twenty seven. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the fullness or the full number or the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So once the fullness has come in, so all Israel will be saved and the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Now, here's the, the reason I put this verse in here is that Paul's saying that there's a mystery that what that wasn't fully clear to the prophets in the Old Testament. It's been made known in Christ. We've talked all about that in the Mystery of Christ series. That's what a mystery is. It wasn't fully understood by the prophets. Now it's made known in Christ. He's saying here that Israel has experienced a hardening in part. That hardening in part led to the crucifixion of the Messiah so that the window could be opened for the covenant to be made with the many nations. And after the covenant is established with many nations, then all Israel will be saved. This, in my mind, gives a much better explanation for why there's this gap between the first three and a half years and the last three and a half years. I've never understood why when people are using that to describe, you know, there's a 80, 70, the the 69 weeks end there, end with the crucifixion, and then there's this floaty seven year, there's this floaty period, seven years, randomly, but what's the explanation for the, the gap? How do you actually explain the gap? See what I'm saying? How do you explain the gap? What's the purpose of the gap? There's not really any purpose. But here, the purpose is so that the gospel, so that Jubilee could be, he's saying, the Jubilee cycles, I want Gentiles in the Jubilee too. It's part of the mystery. So he's going to open the door for them to be included in the Jubilee. That's what he's saying there. Because Daniel 9 is all about the Jubilee cycles. And so, um, when, so when you when you read, let's read um, Isaiah fifty three. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be sat- satisfied. Or, or the alternative, te- the Masoretic, he'll see the result. Or the uh, the alternative, he'll see the result of the suffering of his soul and be satisfied. The reward of his suffering, by his knowledge, by knowledge of him, my righteous servant will justify many, referring not just to Israel but referring to many nations, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion. And a portion in scripture is always referred to, meaning the inheritance, among the great. But the word here, it's, the translation should actually be the many. It's the same word there that he uses up in the, the preceding verse. And he will divide or share the spoils or the inheritance with the many. We're co-heirs with Christ. He sh- what he's saying there is, through his death and resurrection, he shares the inheritance with us. With the nations, the many nations, not just with Israel, but his death and resurrection opens the door for the inheritance to be made available to many nations as well as Israel. And then when you go on to read Isaiah 54, suddenly he says, Zion's not barren anymore. Zion is not barren anymore because she has many sons from all the nations. So uh, the riches of... I, I personally believe that Paul is drawing his prayer in Ephesians 1 from Isaiah 53 and 54. I think that he's getting it directly from there. I pray that the eyes, you Gentile, the eyes of your heart through the Holy Spirit would be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that you are his inheritance and that he's sharing the inheritance with you. Romans 8, now for children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We're heirs of God, and he divides the spoils with us. We're co-heirs with him. And then Romans, Romans 5, not Romans 
15. This is Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, was Adam the father of just one nation? He's the father of all the nations, right? Many nations. This way, death came to all men. So Paul is saying that death is a common problem between Jew and Gentile. If you read Romans, that's the point, is that death comes to all because all have sinned. Because all sinned, all face death. Verse 13, before the law was given, sin was in the world. So sin was a universal problem before the law was even given. So all need the Redeemer. Sin is not taken into account where there is no law. That's one of the reasons God gave the law, so that there could be a reckoning for sin, and we could recognize how sinful we were, so that when the mercy came in Messiah, we would, be, we would, we would receive his mercy. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to the time of Moses. Well, his point here is simply that death is a universal problem that applies to all nations, not just, uh, you know, it's not just Jew, uh, a Jewish thing. It's a, it rep- the problem is applied to all nations because we're all sons of Adam. The gift is not like the trespass. For if the many nations died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many the many, the many, the many nations. The many is always in contrast to Israel. That God's opening the door, not just to Israel, but to the many nations, all of whom are suffering under the bondage and toil of death. And that happens in Christ as co-heirs, as we receive the Holy Spirit. The, all of this taken together, that's why, that's why I lean toward the Septuagint's translation of Daniel 9, 26 to 27. Whether it's convincing to you or not, it's convincing to me, but it's significant when we get to the Olivet Discourse. Track with me. Track with me. Track with me. Now, the question is, if you go with this interpretation, the the remaining question is, what about three and a half years? Because that is not mentioned in... Remember, we have the, for the full cycle of Jubilee cycle to be completed, it's the 70 times the seven. Well, in Daniel 9, it recounts everything except the last three and a half years. If you go with the, the Septuagint's interpretation, it counts everything except the last three and a half years. Because if the Messiah is making the covenant with many, he may, after the 62 weeks means after three and a half years after. Does that make sense? After this, if it's the Messiah, then after the 62 weeks, when he makes the covenant with many, it means three and a half years after the 62 weeks, which leaves three and a half years hanging. So that's the question. Go ahead, Christiane. We will know for sure. We're going to get to some of that. We will know for sure when the last three and a half years begins, and we will know when the final generation begins because of the signs. Okay, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. So, but Daniel, the reason I get to say this is because if you go with this interpretation, which I believe has much more biblical support, then your, question, your remaining question is, well, what about the last three and a half years? Where is that thing? Where's, you're, you're kind of left hanging after Daniel 9. Where's the last three and a half years? It's in Daniel 12. That's why he comes back with it in the last times in Daniel 12. Okay? At that time, this is clearly the time of the end, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. 
But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. This is clearly the end of the age. This is the end of the gap. This is what's happening after the times of the Gentiles, and the many have been brought into covenant with Messiah. Multitudes who sleep in the dust, so on and so forth, uh, they're going to they're gonna wake up. Now, yeah, oh, yeah, I've got have personal revival over here. Um, so now let's go down to verse 6. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? Clearly, this is the end of the age. The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. Check out Revelation 10. The angel, he, he swears by... The mystery is almost complete. The mystery, the mystery, the mystery. Okay? And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for time, times, and half a time. This is the final three and a half years before Jerusalem is no longer desolate and Zion becomes the praise of the earth. When the holy people has, has finally been broken, all these things will be completed. Now, go down to verse 11. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, There'll be 1,200 night. So we're not going to get into all of that. But the times, times, and half of times clearly refers to the end of the age. And this final abomination that causes desolation is not referring. The first one in Daniel 9 refers to, to the first century. This one is clearly referring to the end of the age. We can't assume that they're both the same. I don't think they're, they're referring to two separate things. And, um, and I think that becomes clear when we read the, all the discourse. Now... I, I, I put the Hebrew word for set up here. Uh, it's now then. It doesn't just mean set up because a lot of times people conceive of the abomination of desolation just as an idol in the temple because of this language of being set up. Right, Antiochus. Their mind immediately goes to Antiochus Epiphanes. In, in, uh, that was under the Maccabeans, right? But this word actually can also, it has a number of senses in which it can be used. It can be used as given, appointed, placed. The Young's Little Translation translates it as the giving out of the abomination of desolation. So it can, ha- it can have the sense of abomination that's appointed by God or given by God at the appointed time. And the reason I'm saying that is because when we get to the Olivet Discourse um, coming very soon, when we get there, we realize that we have to have a broad understanding of the abomination of That's right. And that's right. That's a good point. That, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Daniel, the abomination, I'm going to repeat it for the recorder. Eric is saying the abomination of desolation mentioned in Daniel 11 can't be referring to Antiochus ultimately because, I mean, Antiochus is kind of a type, but it can't be ultimately because the Antichrist worships a god not, not of his fathers, and Antiochus set up an image of Zeus, which was the gods he'd inherited from the, Greek, from the Greeks. That's a really great insight. Yes, sir. Exactly. Right, exactly. It's, it, and that word, for, that word for stand, that word for arise or stand, it doesn't just mean in the sense of like he's sitting down and he's, yeah, it means that's exactly right. He's taking his stand. That's what it means. Like he's, he's planting himself for battle. And so, 
he referenced uh, Revelation 12, which we have r- right underneath here, where it says, I, I put Warner's translation here because he says, and she gave birth to a male son who was to shepherd all the nations with a rod of iron. Her child was taken up to God. The woman escaped into the wilderness where she has a place there, having been prepared from God so that they may be nourishing her there 1,260 days. And Warner thinks that because they used the word they, and the earliest, the, the first antecedent before the word they is referring to Gabriel, or, or excuse me, Michael, he thinks that it's referring to Michael and the angels taking care of them in the desert. And let's read his commentary. I think it's really interesting. The context seems to imply a connection to Michael and his angels in verse 7. Psalm 28, 24 through 25 refers to the manna in the wilderness as angels' food. Psalm 91, which is a prophecy about this event, says God will give his angels charge over you. So Daniel 12, 1 refers to the time of trouble. It says that Michael will stand up in God's people. And it's actually saying there that your people. It's talking about, I think, again, because we talked about Jews. It's talking about Jews. Um, so they're ministering spirits. But what's interesting about this is Daniel asks him, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? Referring to Michael taking his stand, the people being delivered, and the resurrection. How long before all of those things are fulfilled? Well, we know the resurrection doesn't happen until after the final three and a half years. So he's saying, from the time when Michael takes his stand to protect your people and the final abomination that causes desolation is given to the land or is set up in the land, or however you want to read that, from that time until the time when multitudes rise in the resurrection, times, times, and half a time. That's the last three and a half years. And in between there, the, co- the Messiah is making a covenant with many nations of the earth so that they will share in the inheritance with him. 